Well, good morning, everybody. I hope that you're able to get outside this weekend and enjoy some of this glorious Kansas weather. I can say that because I uh, lived in Kansas my entire life. Um, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Kyle. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And I'm particularly excited about this text because of the work that God has been doing in my heart through studying it over the course of the last week and a half or so. I had a friend um, that called me and said, hey, brother, I'm praying for you this week. I'm praying that you would connect personally with the text. And I told him, that's exactly what I need. And I've seen the Lord answer that prayer as I've dove into the scriptures and got and watched God bank on his promises in my life. I've watched him convict me of sin, lead me to repentance and show me my need for Jesus. And so as we begin our time here, um, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let me ask for his help. Um, Father, uh, thank you uh, for the work that you promised to do um, as we read your word. Thank you for uh, the Holy Spirit and the conviction uh, that he brings and how he, he does the work that you, Jesus, said he would do in pointing us to Jesus. Um, Father, I'm, I'm aware of a couple things uh, this morning. One is the fact that, uh, myself included, each and every one of us walked into this room um, today. Uh, well, um, we've probably felt the air conditioning. Um, but we also are like setting our hope on, on something or someone. And that's because that's the way that you made us, that we are hardwired for hope and we need hope. But I'm also aware of the fact that you are a living God. And as, as Paul writes to Timothy and talks about behavior in the household of God, he talks about the living God and the promises that are ours and Jesus, our prize. And so, Father, I pray that you would come, you would prove to us that you're alive, that you would show us Jesus, our living hope. Ask these things in his name. Amen. So uh, we are in our second week of this series, Keep the Faith. Last week it was Keep the Faith in Love. This week it's Keep the Faith in Leadership. And so Paul, Paul's going to tell Timothy, hey, um, in chapter 3, verse 14, 15, he's going to say, hey, um, here's the reason I'm writing. I'm writing to tell you how to behave in the household of God. And then he's going to give like all these um, qualifications for elders. Okay, and and before um, it, maybe this maybe this isn't your tendency, but maybe it is. As we talk about church leadership, maybe you're going, well, I don't really have a role of church church leadership here. Um, it, maybe maybe that's you. And if that's your tendency, man, I'd encourage you not to check out because Paul says I'm encouraging you. Okay, in writing this letter, so that you all, as brothers and sisters, not only know how to behave here in the church, but when you leave here and you spend your time out here, that you'd reflect the glory of Jesus. You'd be built up and sent out. And before we go any further, as we talk about church leadership, I want to acknowledge our leadership. Um, we are an elder-led church. And... Maybe you'll have the opportunity this week to read through this letter. We're not going to cover it um, this morning, but in chapter 3, it talks about the qualifications for elders or overseers. And I can tell you that each and every one of our elders like exudes these Christ-centered qualities. I know that because they put up with me for like 12 years, and it's only by God's grace that they could do that. But seriously, like these guys know, like they need Jesus and they pursue him daily. And I'm just, just really, really grateful for them. Um, if, if you know one of, one of the elders or, um, even if you, you don't know them, but recognize them after the service, I just encourage you to go up to them and tell them, thank you for their hard work. Thank you, uh, for them serving our church family. 
So let me give you a little context, a little background with this letter. Uh, we have Father Paul, who's kind of towards the end of his life here. And he's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul is in between his imprisonments, and um, he doesn't know if he's going to be able to make it to Ephesus, and so he sends Timothy there, right? And so I say the word Ephesus, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you go, yeah, book of Ephesians, that's these people, okay? That is these people. And what's going on is there's some false teachers that have risen up, and so he says, hey, Timothy, I can't get there. Brother, I need you to go. But the overall tone of the letter is from a father to a son. And so as I was thinking about leadership, I was thinking about my, my own dad this week. And I mean, my dad was not only just, just a leader, but he's, he's been a spiritual leader in my life and pointed me to Jesus my entire life, actually led me to the Lord when I was 19 years old. Um, and my dad, with, with me and my three brothers, he had this tradition. When we graduate, we'd have a party, and he would share a blessing. And it would have been um, a document that he would have detailed and written out beforehand and then shared that with, our, with us, uh, with our close friends and family. And I remember my dad writing this or reading this, and he's just affirming God's call in my life. He's affirming what God's done to this point, point and then pointing me to God's hopes um, for my future. You know, I remember my dad reading this and like, he can't, he can't even read it because he's getting so choked up and like other people are in the room, right? Um, and it's just the secret of, of a father's heart for a son. And that's exactly what we have here um, with Paul as he writes to Timothy. But here's the thing that Paul is going to do. He's going to beat this drum and he's going to say godliness, 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 godliness. He's going to do it nine times in the letter. Nine different times he's going to mention godliness. And you could argue, because Paul is actually at the end of his life, that this is the most important thing to him. He has the most perspective, and he keeps repeating this. It's his anthem, godliness. Okay, It's the most important thing to Paul. It's the point that he wants to drive home um, to Timothy. And what he's saying is that the gospel of grace transforms and leads you into godliness. So I have a question for you. Who is the hardest person in your life to lead? Think about that person. Um, I've had a week and a half to think about this. And I came to the conclusion that the hardest person in my life to lead is actually myself. And I don't know if you feel that, but like I know myself more than anybody, right? And I'm a pretty hard person to lead. Like, that's not just rhetoric. Like, that, that's really true. Like, I really believe that. And so what Paul is going to do um, in these verses that we're going to cover here is he's going to say, hey, examine your life in light of the gospel. Examine your life in light of the gospel. That's what he invites us to do. And that's what I wanted to invite us to do, to make this personal. And so we're going to read together 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 10. I'll give you a second to turn there. It says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially 
of those who believe. So right, right out the gates, like in verse 6, Paul's going to mention good doctrine. And here's all he's saying is, you've kept it about Jesus. He mentions the name Jesus 15 times in this letter that you could sit down this afternoon and read in 12 minutes. I did it yesterday afternoon, right? Like, like 15 times. And not only that, he's been, Paul's been walking with Timothy his entire life, right? Like he's, he's a son in the faith. And so he knows Jesus, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus. But he says, Hey, great job. Not only have you kept this good doctrine that's centered in all about Jesus, not only have you treasured him and made him and set your hope on him, but, but also you've actually followed this. Like he commends him for godliness and encourages him and says, you followed this God, good doctrine. But the reason he mentions it is because in uh, verses one through five of chapter four, I'm not going to get in it now, but like he's, he's contrasting this good doctrine with the bad doctrine of some of the elders at Ephesus. And so I'm not going to read it, but just want to summarize this for you. Here's what's going on. And this is why Paul actually sent Timothy to the church at Ephesus is there's a few elders there who are starting to get traction with a following. Okay, and, th- and this following um, is essentially called, like scholars call it asceticism, and it's an extreme form of self-discipline is what it is. And so th- these guys have kind of some traction with this, and the text actually mentions in verse 1 through 5, it says, um, man, th- these guys are, they're elders in the church, so they're Christians, right? So they've trusted in the person and the work of Jesus, but they're moving on to this really, like, gruesome form of self-discipline. And here's two things the text mentions, okay? You need Jesus, but also make sure that you don't get married and don't eat good food right? So talk about an evangelism strategy, right? Hey, um, we'd love for everybody to come to Fellowship Bible Church, uh, but you can't get married and no ice cream for you. Like, how's that going to work? I'm out, right? Like I'm gone from this church if that's the plan. And that, but that's, but like this movement is getting traction. And essentially what this is, is it's legalism. Because these, these elders, these leaders in the church who were once grounded in the gospel said, yeah, yeah, you need Jesus, but then you need to not do all these things. Right? And then if you don't do all these things, then you'll be closer with God. Man, like, like, and Paul probably could have called out a lot of things. Like, there's tons of things going on in the city of Ephesus. He could have called out a lot of things, but he calls these guys out because he knows it's dangerous. Right? Because, because legalism, legalism is just dangerous because it looks really good. Like, legalism can kind of look like godliness. And I know the reality for, for those of us in the room that are Christians is we would, we, would, we would never say, yeah, trust Jesus. Now, in order to get close with him, in order to be godly, in order for him to have a right standing with him, like, don't do all these things and add to the gospel. We know the gospel is everything. But functionally, I live that way, and I think that we all do at times, right? So, like, give me exa- get, let me give you examples. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, but make sure also, if you want to have right approval with him, like, make sure and, and raise your kids this way. Yeah, Jesus, but you also need to make sure that you're having a quiet time every single day. Make sure that you're in church, and, and man, like, check your attendance in your small group, too. Like, do all these things, and then... Then you can look at God and go, yes, God, look at all the things I did for you. See, legalism, the heart behind legalism, it's all about motivation. The heart behind legalism is not love for God, but rather leverage over him. And so that we can look at God, hold up our resume and say, hey, God, look at all the things I did for you. You owe me. You owe me a good life. Like, I don't understand why these things are happening. Like, look what I did for you. And it's like quid pro quo with God. 
And so what Paul is going to call Timothy and call us back to, he's going to call us back to the gospel and say, no, 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 it's all about Jesus, 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 Jesus. And so in verse, verse 7 and uh, the first part of verse 8, he's actually going to contrast a, um, uh, a diet and discipline here. And he's going to talk about um, physical exercise and compare it with spiritual exercise. So let's read that together. It says, rather train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. What we're going to see in, in, in Paul's life and in several of his other letters is he, he works hard, but he does it in grace. And so in 1 Corinthians 15.10, here's another example. And this, this is very helpful for me this week. He says um, in verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul's going to say, man, I worked harder than all y'all. Like I got the battle wounds, I got the scars to prove it. I worked hard, but I did it in grace. I did it with my hope set on my treasure with his G- with Jesus. And he's the one that gave me the power. He's the one that came and did that work in my life. It's him. He gets all the credit. So Paul's going to say, hard work is not legalism. It's about your motivation. It's about the motivation of your heart. What is your hope set on? And then he's going to talk about this physical exercise, comparing it to spiritual exercise. And um, a couple of the commentators I read this week talked about having a diet in God's word and the discipline of applying God's word. And so even in verse 7 there, it says being trained in, and that means to be nourished. So imagine with me, if you will, just your typical day. You wake up the morning, you go... Ah, not gonna have breakfast today. I'm just gonna keep on rolling. I'm good at this water here. And then um, lunchtime comes around, and you feed the kids, and go, ah, nah, I'll just, I'll just skip. I'm kind of busy. All right. By the time dinner comes around, I'm passed out. Personally, I love food. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm probably not gonna make it. But the reality is, I do that with my soul, right? Like. I deprive myself from, from the food of my soul, the very thing that I need. Jesus said that man does not live on bread alone, but every word spoken from the mouth of God. Like, we, we need this to live spiritually. We need, need God's word. And that's why I'm really grateful um, for the leadership at our church, for elders um, who have set kind of a plan in place for us. We have a bookmark and a journal that has um, daily readings that you can do that correspond with what we're talking about up here. Um, and it's just a great way for us all as a church family to be on the same page. It isn't the only way, right? It isn't the only way to read God's word, but it is a way that you can do that. Um, and we can do it together. So having a diet in God's word, um, one of the illustrations that's been really helpful for me is the illustration of a motorboat, a paddle boat and a sailboat. Okay. So Paul says, Hey, um, yeah, I worked harder than all y'all, but I did it in grace. Like, what does that look like on the ground in my life when we talk about having a diet in God's word? So a motorboat would be this. Like, what do you do? And some of you guys have been on the lake this, this summer, right? Like, what do you do? You turn the key, and then the motor does all the work, and you go from point A to point, point B, and you're cruising with the wind in your hair. Okay? Amazing. What that kind of, what that represents is like, like the days where I go, man, God, like if I'm going to spend time in your word, like you're going to have to make it happen. Like I, I'm not setting an alarm. I don't have a plan. I don't have a journal. Like, like you just make it happen. Okay. 
It's all up to you, God. Second illustration, a paddle boat. You get in the paddle boat, you have to go across the lake, and it's all up to you, right? Like there's no motor, there's nothing. You just got to start kicking. You got to start moving your feet, right? And, and that's, that, that kind of represents um, on, on those days where you go, okay, um, uh, this entire week, i um, set my alarm clock for 4.30, and I'm going to memorize the book of Leviticus. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> no, you're not. You're going to fail. Okay, um, and then the third illustration that actually is helpful is um, the sailboat. So the sailboat, you push off the shore, okay, and you just wait for that wind to come. There it is. You put your sail up. The wind gets in your sail and it, and it takes off. And the only reason that you're moving is because of this wind, right? And that represents the spirit of God and his grace working in our lives. Like we're prepared. We're ready to go. Right? Like we have our, our alarm set or whatever, okay? Um, we're, we're actually working hard, but like we're waiting for his grace. And if his grace, if the wind doesn't show up, like we ain't going nowhere. So that's just, just really, really helpful for me thinking um, through that. Now, um, for a discipline of applying God's word. Did you know that uh, the root word of disciple actually comes from discipline? So like to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple is to be disciplined. And Paul commends this. He says, I've worked harder than all y'all. Self-discipline is a good thing rooted in grace. And this is where it gets hard, right? Like, this is where we have to live it out. This is where, like, yeah, you've spent time with Jesus. You've read the, read the Word. You've had your diet in God's Word. And then you wake up or um, you get up in the morning. You've done your thing. And then, um, man, three little kids are screaming. And they have dirty diapers. And they need your help. Not that that's my world right now or anything. Not that I'm like, I'm, I'm projecting that. Um, Whatever it is, fill in the blank for you. Like you show up to work and you're like, okay, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do it in grace. And you get to work Monday morning and your boss is there. He's beat you to work and he's got a laundry list of stuff for you to do. You're like, oh no, not again. I got to put up with this guy. Right? And so Paul's going to say that we need a great deal of motivation, right? Like if we're going to work hard and do it in grace, like we, we have to be motivated, right? Like it has to come from somewhere outside of ourselves. And so Paul's going to talk about hope in verse 10. I'm going to read this again here. It says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. As Christians, we'd agree with Paul, as he writes in the New Testament, that, that faith is the things hoped for, right? Faith is a, or hope is a really powerful thing in our culture. Like, um, I, I would argue that every single presidency is built upon the platform of hope, whether we call it that or not. Our culture is obsessed with hope, and so are we. And so we say things like, like um, man, I hope Cold Stone's open. That's my life. Love Colson. Um, or, I mean, I hope that my kids get into that school. I hope that I get the results I want from the doctor. I hope that she likes me as much as I like her. I hope that we're able to pay the bills at the end of the month. I hope, I hope, I hope. I have a friend on Instagram who, um, her description of who she is um, is hope junkie. And I'm just like, me too. You know, like, like we are all hope junkies. And the reality is like God made us this way to draw us to himself. The reality is we are all hardwired for hope. 
When we came in here this morning, we were all setting our hope on something or someone. And for some of you, if you're honest in your heart, like you said, yeah, that's Jesus. Like I've had a hard week, but I've looked to Jesus and I've seen him help me and he's been my motivation. He's been my hope. If that's you, that's awesome. But for for the rest of us, like, what are we setting our hope on? And so as we have a lot of young families or as we we think about um, the summer, I want you to think about, like, back in in April and May when you had 47 graduation parties to go to, uh, 12 weddings, on top of everything else going on in your life. Right? And you're just just feeling like, how are we going to do all this stuff? And you turn to your spouse and go, I cannot wait till we're in the mountains in June. We get to go to Colorado. By the way, I have all my friends that are putting like pictures of them in Colorado, and I'm tired of it. It's so hot here. Stop. Right? But what, what we've done in that moment is like functionally, we've set our hope on what's going to happen in a month or two from now, right? And, and I, don't, I don't think that we just like, like all of a sudden, okay, say, okay, I'm not going to put my hope in Jesus. I'm going to go put my hope in this vacation. Like, I think it's a drifting process, right? And so you, you can probably um, tell that um, I am my own barber. I cut my own hair. And um, <laughs> like every once in a while, my wife has to trim up the back for me. And it never fails. Every single time, she goes, Kyle, you're, you need to center your head. You need to move your head back to the middle. And so what has happened is I've, I feel like I got my head steady. And all of a sudden, I see something over here, a squirrel, right? <laughs> and I'm like... And I see, and I start looking over there, and then my head just starts drifting. She's like, Kyle. In grace, she tells me, Kyle, I love you. <laughs> Move your head back <laughs> to the center, right? And then I have a gaping hole back here, right, in my head. So, and, and, but that's kind of what we do as functionally as we, we set our hope. We want to set it on Jesus, but we set it on other things. And the reality is all these things, like they're good things, um, but man, they're dead, they always overpromise and underdeliver. They never give us what we're hoping for. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to talk about this living God. He's going to say, you need this living God who is Jesus. He's going to say, he's alive. And he has the power to satisfy your soul. He's going to tell us that Jesus is the promise and the prize of godliness. I want to look at the promise first. And so let's uh, reread uh, verse 8 here again. It says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. As I cross-referenced this verse this week, um, I found a lot of Psalms and other passages um, that refer to this. And what they are, they're promises from God to His chosen people in the Old Testament that are now ours in the person and the work of Jesus. And so what I want to do is just take a minute and read those promises. I've summarized them, um, but they're promises that were bought by the blood of Jesus and they're for us. Um, and so if, if, if you'd like to, I just invite you to close your eyes, um, to, to make, uh, uh, just a second here and, and just calm your soul, um, as I read these promises that are ours in Jesus. In Jesus, we are promised that God delights in us And we find great delight in Him. In Jesus we are promised inheritance of the land and abundant peace. In Jesus we are promised that God will act as a sun and a shield, bestowing favor and honor. In Jesus we are promised 
to be filled with courage, to be a blessing to our generation. In Jesus, we are promised to be heard by God and that he will fulfill our desires. In Jesus, we are promised rest and freedom from harm. You can open up your eyes unless you fell asleep during that time and enjoy your nap. I mean, all of these promises are ours in Jesus. He paid for them. And in John 10, 10, he says, I've come that you may have life and life to the full. I think as Christians, a lot of times what we do is we fix our eyes on eternity. You go, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I've read these things. I'm going to have these someday in eternity with God. But the reality is Jesus is saying, you can bank your hope on those promises for today. Those are yours by faith and trust in Jesus. He actually gives those promises, and there's many more of them. He gives them to us. Isn't that incredible? They're ours. Do you believe that? Next, um, I want to look at how Jesus is the prize of godliness. And I don't know about you guys, I'm excited for the Olympics coming up. Um, I love basketball, so I've been keeping up with the men's USA basketball team. And on Instagram, yeah, I do look at a lot of Instagram, okay? Um, This week, uh, the men's basketball team said, eyes on the gold, right? Like eyes on the prize. I mean, they're ready. They're going to get that gold medal. I believe that. Um, uh, I would also argue that um, the best USA men's basketball team was the Dream Team in 1992. Y'all remember? Bird, Magic, Jordan. Okay, if any of you guys want to dispute that with me afterwards, I'd, I'd welcome that. But, uh, my, one of my favorite Olympians is um, actually Scottish. I'm sorry. Um, I don't know if that makes me less American, but it's just because of, because of a movie. Eric Little was in a movie called uh, Chariots of Fire. Some of y'all remember that from 1981. That is before I was born. Um, and, and actually, um, he ran in like 1924. Okay, but uh, I want to show you a clip because I think it really gets at Jesus being our prize and what that looks at. And in this clip, he's talking with, I believe, his sister, right? And he's having this conversation like, do I go to China and be a missionary or do I stay and run in the Olympics? So check this out. I love that line where he says, uh, I know God made me fast. Uh, when I run, I feel his pleasure. You heard my Scottish accent come out a little bit there <laughs> at the end. Right? Um, but what this is, is like, it's so helpful for me of going, what does it look like to have Jesus be my prize, to be my gold medal? Man, it's, it's pleasure in God. Like, do you enjoy God? Are you satisfied? And, and does he give you what you want in your deepest longings? The answer is yes. Like, Jesus is our prize. And so... Paul actually um, is going to talk about this um, a little bit earlier in the letter. He's going to call it the mystery of godliness. 
Okay, so in a second, if you'll tur- turn the page here, we're in chapter 4, back to chapter 3. Um, I mean, he's, here's what you have to know. Here's what you have to know about the church at Ephesus. These guys were obsessed with mysteries. Like, if you would have said the word mystery, it would have been like you were talking about Pokemon Go, okay? Like, like they're like, a mystery? What, what's, what's mystery, man? Like, let's, let's talk this out. Um, because they were obsessed with these secret codes and secret ways of living. So they have this hidden knowledge. Okay, and what they do is once they had this hidden knowledge, they'd actually just keep it to themselves and go, no, don't tell anybody about this. It's kind of like our thing, right? And so Paul comes on the scene and he goes, I got a mystery for you. But the thing is, this mystery is going to change everything about you. And this mystery is for everybody. Everybody needs it. And we're going to proclaim it. We're going to announce it. Everybody needs this mystery. And so Paul, when he was writing this letter, like, like most of his letters, likely would have been speaking it and had a scribe writing down what he was saying. And so what I envision is, verse 16 is a hymn. What I actually envision is like Paul is, is speaking about these things and like he's treasuring Jesus so much. He's going, words are going to fail me. And so he busts out in a song. Like he starts singing, he goes, I'm treasuring, I love this Jesus so much, like I must sing about him. And what he's going to do is he's going to blow up whatever box you put Jesus in. He's going to blow it up and go, he's so much greater. Like he's so much greater than you could ever imagine, man. This Jesus, like, like I'm just, just going to have to sing about him. And in each line, he's, gonna, he's going to tell us about the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Let's read it here, just verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, which means his own Spirit, the Holy Spirit, rose him from the grave. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Man, I wish we had more time to unpack this. Um, what Paul's saying is, this, this Jesus, he is the mystery of godliness. And, and this, this Jesus, he's alive. Like, he was alive before creation. He's the creator. And the creator actually became creation. So we see in John 1, that when it says that the flesh, that, that God put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, he's at, what that actually means is skinetto. Like, God put on skin, and he knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. He knows what it's like to suffer, man. He knows what it's, what it's like um, to have hardships in life. He knows what it's like to work hard. He knows the things that we've been through, and he's alive. And then he's also alive through his spirit that lives in and through each one of us and promises to be in this room with us. He's here, but then he's at the right hand of God where he's been exalted and he's the king. He's the king whom the angels worship and who we will join one day in eternity singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive the glory for his suffering. And in this mystery of godliness, essentially what Paul's saying is that Christ, Jesus, is the mystery. That godliness is not this like static thing that's out there or like this mystical thing. Godliness is a person. And like the reason that Jesus came is he actually came to purchase godliness. Yes, he, yes, he came to purchase our salvation and the repentance and the faith that comes along with that. But he also came to purchase the striving, to pay for the hard work. Right? To give us that grace that we need to move towards godliness. See, Jesus didn't just come to give us a better life or to make us good. He came to make us godly. He came to make us like himself. 
So I just want to end with a story. I have a friend, Aaron Catlin, um, who has spent the last two and a half years in Southeast Asia. And um, he has taken this good news and to a people group who does not have access to it. He left the job where he was paid really well, um, big house, and um, sold all his stuff or gave it away. And um, took his family of six overseas, right? And like the brothers worked harder than anybody I know over the course of the last two and a half years. Um, he's learned like one of the hardest languages to learn, Mandarin. Um, and then he's, he's tried to do ministry in a culture that's completely opposite of, of what we experience here and everything that he knows. And he's worked so hard. And so I got some time with him here recently. And I said, um, I started just asking him a question, just trying to get a vibe of how things are going for him. And essentially, like I found myself asking, like, dude, is it worth it? Like what you're doing, is it worth it? And he said, well, I know Jesus more deeply. I know Jesus, like, I don't know if the ministry, if it's working, like, it's going well, but, like, I know Jesus, like, that's what it's about, that's what's important to me. I just told him, man, like, I want that. Like, that's my prayer for myself, that as, as I go and, and, and work hard and, and do things that God's called me to do, but, like, that I would really experience Jesus, that I would feel his pleasure, that he would be my prize. And that's my prayer for all of us. So let me just uh, end our time by, by praying and asking God for that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, moments like this that we get to share together as a community, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for what you've done even in this, even in this hour. Um, thank you that you, I believe, have, have banked on your promises to be the living God, to transform us by your grace and move us into godliness. Father, I pray this week um, as we leave here that you'd remind us of these truths and that would be evidence of you being alive. I pray that you would um, orient our hopes towards you, that you would fix our eyes upon Jesus and I ask all these things in his name. Amen.